Well, I went to Bible college a number of years ago, and we had this one guy that came to our uh, dorm. We had about 40 guys sleeping in a dorm. Just imagine Bible camp, but with no leaders, and 40 guys and no bedtime. It was wild. And uh, he came down, and he had some serious concerns. And so all 40 of us were sitting in this room with our backs against the wall in a square. I remember it so vividly. And he started off, he had some dentures, I think, and so they clicked quite a bit as he talked. And he talked about how um, a lot of us struggle with lust because our pillows are too big. And we're like, I don't know if I'm following. I just don't know if I'm getting where you're coming from here. And then he got really, really serious with us. And he said this, and I'll never forget these next moments. He said, some of you, or at least one of you, in the next five years in this circle will die. And we were like, we're all like 18, 19 years old. And he says, one of you will die. And we weren't sure if this was a prophetic word or just a statistical sort of call. And then he said, and in the next five years, he said, many of you will walk away from the faith. And he said it, and I remember thinking, man, these things are so outrageous that you're saying this. And then he said, I've been doing this for 40 years. He said, and I've seen classes like this come through every year for 40. And he said, many of you will not be followers of Jesus in five years, and one of you will die. And we were so confused. He said, you need to make sure that you personally are not deceived and that you personally do not grow cold. And it was one of those moments that is just sort of cemented in our minds. And, and one year later, one of my best friends named Dave Sinclair, he, was, he died in a, in a sea-dew accident, and we're all at his funeral. And, and we were just talking about some of the things that our RA said. And he said that many will fall away, and, and there were quite a few guys that are already going down that path. And this is what he said. He says, you know what? None of you are going to just, just fall away overnight. Many of you are not going to have just colossal failures instantly We're like frogs. If you put a frog into boiling water, it's just going to jump right out. That's what they do. But if you put a frog into a pot of water and put it on the stove, it's not going to notice the temperature change, and the frog will boil to death. He says, so it is with our faith. You're not going to just instantly walk away. It's going to happen very, very slowly. And many, I believe... I believe that there's a warning in Scripture that many of us in this place, based on similar circumstance, will also fall away from our faith. And, and I really, really love you all. And I'm really not okay with this. See, I really feel like God has given us a real warning for tonight. And, and it's one of these passages that's pretty heavy. And, and I don't often preach such things. I think that as, as, a, as a communicator and as a pastor, I have a bit of a blind spot in my, in my theology. And here's what it is. I have a hard time seeing the bad in anybody or not giving people the benefit of the doubt. I always see the good in everyone. And it, and it makes me a bit blind to messages kind of like this. So it's a little bit more difficult. When I was doing junior high, uh, I was just doing junior high for my first year here at the church, and there was another guy that was here for a very short amount of time, and he was doing senior high. And quite a few of our kids were moving up, and they were stopped going altogether, and they were actually leaving the faith really quickly. And I went to him, and I was, I was just like, hey, like, what's happening with our kids? Where are they all going? And this is what he said to me. 
He said it's like the parable of the sower. He said only one quarter of people that receive Christ will keep following him. I could have murdered him. Like he's talking about my kids, you know? He's talking about like our sweet, wonderful kids that are falling away. And it's just, this is just the cost of what it is. And we've gotten so used to people leaving the faith that it doesn't grieve us like it should. And I was so upset. You see, every perfect gift is from God. All fullness of life is found in him. And some of us in this place might forget that and become deceived. It's so fascinating that even one of the 12 that followed Jesus for three years walked away from him. Jesus said that it would be better if he was never even born because what he was forfeiting was so great. So why don't you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 47. And we're going to be delving into Matthew 27 shortly after. But Matthew 26, verse 47. So while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. They say that this was a legion of men, and so it was probably around 200 soldiers that showed up. So Jesus, a man who'd never shown any aggression, they come after him with 200. Sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now this was an interesting signal that Judas had chosen. Probably the guards had asked Judas to make it this because Judas was so close to him that if anyone else came to Jesus and attempted to kiss him, it would have been quite awkward and he likely would have recoiled because it wouldn't have been the norm. You only kissed people that were essentially like family. Judas kissing Jesus was signaling the fact that they were extremely close. This was basically a part of his family. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. This is interesting. Jesus is being betrayed by one of his best friends, by 200 men, and he's left all alone. He should be agitated, but he bends down, picks up the ear, and places it back on the guy's head. It's an unbelievable story. Let's skip ahead to Matthew 27. We'll go to verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility, So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. Now you need to understand something, is that now, based on history that we know, 
Whenever we imagine the 12 disciples or see a movie, Judas is like the skeevy guy in the shadows, you know? He's in the background laughing. He's got the angry eyebrows going on. Judas is the bad guy. But prior to this, he was not. He was very well respected. He was essentially like the executive pastor of the group. He was one of the 12 church leaders, one of Jesus' inside men. He was respected. And so now, Judas not only betrays Jesus, but hangs himself. And you have to understand what happens next. This is a very public humiliation. Judas is hanging from a tree. The Jews won't touch him. They can't touch a dead body. The Romans want the humiliation to go on and on. So Judas hung there for a very long time. He's hanging from a tree in full view in this place called the Valley of Hinnom. This is what it looks like right here. So this is high up in the valley, overlooking the whole city. People look up and see Judas, and the trees in this valley are really high. And Judas is way up there hanging. So everybody is seeing this public humiliation. And after a while, his body decomposes. And Acts 1 tells us that he fell headlong, probably after his head was removed from his body due to decapitation, and his intestines spilled out all over the valley. So this would have been in full view of the people. There's one of Jesus' guys. He has just spilled out all over the ground, and nobody is coming to clean it up. This was so crazy. Many people would have fallen away because of what they just witnessed. This was Jesus' guy. There would have been a lot of talk in the town. Did you see what Judas did? Right now we understand it, but back then they wouldn't have. And we all have the same potential in us, that same sinful nature that he had. There's a little bit of Judas in us, in us all. You see, Judas, Judas knew Jesus well and worshipped him. He was with him every day for three years. He would have been a worshiper like us. We know Jesus. Judas knew Jesus. He kissed him. His problem was not intimacy or knowledge. It was simply this. It was the love of sin. He wanted money, and he wanted it more than he wanted Jesus. It was just that simple, and this is a very real risk for us. Wanting my sin more than I want Jesus. And it's really fascinating that throughout all of the different countries that are persecuting Christians, they know that this is our nature, and they will always go after it. There was this girl named Natasha, and she was arrested in communist Russia. And Natasha was, was known for her beauty, and this was her God. She said that she loved walking into a room and for all the men to look at her. She said that it gave her power, that she could ask for things and get them because of her beauty. This was her God. And they found her in an underground house church. And they arrested her, and they asked where the rest of the people were and who they were. And she wouldn't give them up. So they brought to her a picture of a known model named Ada, and they showed it to her, and she knew who it was right away. And then they showed her an after picture, after she's been in prison for a couple of years, and Ada had no more hair. She had no teeth. There was malnourishment and a lack of sunlight, and she was hideous. And Natasha instantly gave up the names of the 50 others in the church. 
And she just walked away from Jesus right there. And her beauty was fleeting anyways, and she eventually got old and wrinkly and frail, and she died, and she is now dead, and she's turned to dust. But her God at the time was her beauty, and she chose it over Jesus. This happened to Judas. He wanted to be rich, and he wanted power. He wanted the Romans to look at him and say, oh, there's a guy of some serious power. 30 pieces of silver was a lot of money. But can you imagine... Judas did this act, and then he's got the 30 pieces of silver, and he's at home holding them, and then he's thinking to himself, is this it? Is this it? I gave it up for this? And then he took the money, and he threw it on the temple floor, and then he hung himself. You see, back then, he knew the law, and here was the law, that if there was innocent blood shed because of you, you had to pay the punishment that they paid. And so he knew that Jesus was to die, and so he said, I must die too, because that's the law, and he took his own life. See, we want something so bad, and when we get it, it reveals itself for what it is. When Michael Phelps came back from the Olympics, he won 23 gold medals, by far the most decorated athlete. He came back after having 40 world records, And he hit the drugs hard. He fell into deep suicide. I just watched a video um, with him explaining his whole process. And this is what he said. The person who was interviewing him said, tell us how you felt when you came back. He said, when I got back, I just did not want to live anymore. Suicide was the only thing on his brain. It's called post-Olympic depression syndrome. And it exists in pretty much every sport and major achievement. It's the lowest point for most people when they reach their highest goal and it doesn't amount to anything. They just feel this massive pit. And we need to know this. We all have something that we want so bad. Think about it. If you could have anything on earth, what would it be? For some of us, it would be like that job or that career or that relationship. Oh, If only I could date him or her or that spouse or that family, that house. Then we get that thing and we feel the weight of its uselessness and it reveals itself for what it was. And this is Job and this is Judas. All these people that find that what they always sought was nothing at all. Malcolm Muggridge was visiting India he was a Christian man, and, and as he was visiting India, he saw a woman, and she was swimming naked. And although he was married, he decided that he would go out and have sex with her. He reasoned in his heart that no one would ever know. And this is what he decided to do. So he took off his clothes, and he got into the water, and he started to walk out to her. And, and when she saw him, She greeted him and and seemed to approve of the advance. And he was filled with lust and desire. And then eventually he got close enough and she smiled at him. And he saw that she was missing teeth. That her lips were rotten and she had no nose. And that she had leprosy. He said that he was absolutely disgusted not with her but with his own heart. 
This is sin. It is so appealing, and then we get close, and it is wretched. See, every ruined life started with an innocent enough seeming desire. This is like Adam and Eve. They wanted to know what sin looked like and thought that God was keeping something from them. They wanted to know. They thought, God, surely there's something better. You're keeping it from me. I want to know. You need to show it to me. And this is the heart of what we deal with. And there's so many messed up people and destruction, and it's because desire conceived sin and gave birth to death. Listen to what James says. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when in full grown, gives birth to death. You see, it starts so small. But things that we desire and fantasize about in our hearts, eventually we will go there. Eventually we will go to our fantasies. That's where we go. That's how the human heart works. Listen to what James says next. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. If you find yourself dissatisfied, discontent, hungry for more, it means you're probably worshiping another God. You see, Judas did not trust Jesus at all. When they're having the Passover meal, Jesus said, he said, one of you will betray me. And there's the 12 boys that are there. And one at a time, they're like, surely not I, Lord. Peter says, surely not I, Lord. One at a time, surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. This term Lord was powerful. It means you're my master and I follow you and I trust you and you call the shots. They're saying, no, Lord, no, Lord. And then Judas looks at Jesus and he says, is it I, Rabbi? He wouldn't call him Lord. He took him as a teacher. He took him as a good man but not as his Lord. See, following Jesus is not a cognitive set of ideas or a political party or worldview or philosophy. When he is Lord, it means he decides what I do. It means it's not my choice. You see, after Judas betrayed Jesus, he returns the money, and Matthew says that Judas had remorse. People might say, but Judas turned back, and he repented. Why did he have to go and hang himself? Which he didn't have to go hang himself. But it says that he had remorse and he changed his mind. Remorse is this Greek word, metalomai. And that's not repent. Repent is something really different. It's this word, metanai, which he did not do. Remorse is when you are sad at the consequence of sin. You're just sorry you were caught. You're sorry you're put in the situation. He was remorseful but not repentant. Remorse is being sorry about something, but repentance is being sorry enough to actually stop doing that thing. A few years ago, a guy named Christopher Bergeson was, was driving his car and he swerved off the road and he, his car actually flew 150 feet and it landed upside down, and he was ejected from the car, and he was killed instantly. And when the police came and did their report, they noticed something fascinating. 
they noticed that 10 feet away from the truck was a traffic ticket for not wearing his seatbelt, and it was from nine days earlier. He got this ticket, and I'm sure that he was remorseful that he got caught, but not sorry enough to stop breaking that law, and it cost him his life. And so often in church, we're so much the same. We hear the conviction of the Spirit, and we hear it often. And that puts us in a dangerous place because God does this for us to save us. But in the past, you've been convicted too and felt remorse and just done nothing about it. And this hardens our hearts. And the more times we harden our hearts, the more we're in serious danger of having a heart of stone. Like, I don't know how many times God has hardened, or sorry, convicted my heart on, a, on something and I'll, I'll leave this place or my life and think I'm going to make a change with this thing and then never actually do it. And as time goes on, you just lose hope. And eventually we just become hard-hearted in these departments. There was one guy that said to me this morning, I spoke um, at Metro and he said, you know what? He says, I have been convicted of pornography so many times, and eventually, as somebody would talk about it, I would just not hear anything. I would just have a hard heart, and I would just think, God, mind your own business, until it cost me my marriage. This is what happened in Rome. Paul said, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. You see, God gave them over and hardened their hearts. Last week we talked about the ten plagues. And originally, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and was like, no way God. No way God. And for a whole bunch of the time, he just kept hardening his heart and saying, no, no, no. And finally, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he could no longer move and make a change that would have saved him. This is what happened with Judas. See, this is why Jesus put him in charge of the money in the first place. It says many times prior that he kept stealing money because his God was cash. But Jesus kept giving him opportunity and even said, Judas, you be the treasurer, hoping that this conviction would create repentance and not just remorse, and it never did, and ended up claiming him. You see, here's the message of the kingdom of God. Scripture says that John the Baptist came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Jesus came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's right now. It's actually here. And it's in repenting that the kingdom breaks out because it's from our sin that he saves us from. He's our savior, but what's he saving us from? From our own sin that will absolutely destroy us. And he invites us to be saints to be freed from this cycle. I want to show you a little clip from um, this movie that I really recommend you all watch. We've talked about it a fair amount here. It's called The Heart of Man. I really think it's an important film for our time, and I really want you guys to see this clip. Go ahead and roll that. Many of us are still trying to prove that we are enough by the very law that tried to prove to us that we're not enough. When he calls us a saint, he makes an incredible statement about us. 
we are no longer defined by being a sinner. I got caught, January 4th, 94. I get a call, and Kim says, I'm waiting for you at your office, and I know. That's the whole phone call. And what she knew, and I knew that she knew when she said it, was that I was in a three-month affair with one of her best friends at the time. When I choose to run from him into the darkness, he's with me in the room, and he's not angry, and he's in love with me deeply, and his facial expression is fixed on mine, and he's loving me. It isn't just about the struggle with lust. Lust is desire gone mad. So every man, every woman struggles with lust uh, uh, for something that fills something of our emptiness. I see this kind of vision take over my line of sight. And I remember I was in prison and my hands were cuffed together and I had a tray of food and I was walking in the cafeteria in prison past all these tables. 
and no one would let me sit with him. And I found my own table and I sat down and in walks Jesus. And he's dressed in prison clothing like me. And he sits down across the table from me and he doesn't say anything. And I asked him, I said, will you eat another meal with me? And he said, I'll eat with you anytime you want. By the way, the door's open and you can leave anytime you want. Man, I just, I melted. It's unconditional, unfailing, present love. But for him to be with me in my addiction and in sickness and in relapse over and over and over again, that's what changes me. He has come to set us free to be fully human and fully alive. He's wild about us when we sin. He's wild about us when we don't. He's wild about us in the past and the future. So God knows my sexual sin that's going to be committed two years from now. And he's still crazy about me. And, and it doesn't make it less difficult, but in many ways, it makes the taste of goodness so powerful that it's not that we're just saying no. We're actually far more saying yes to what God has for us. So good. So Judas thought that he had to pay for what he had done. He didn't, he didn't recognize that, that Jesus was going to pay for it for him. He was going to be the one to hang on a tree. One of my favorite hymns is Come Thou Fount. It's from the 1800s. It says, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never failing. Call for hymns of loudest praise. The song has got so much meaning. It was written by Robert Robertson. And, and after he wrote this song, he walked away from his faith. He had sin in his life that he remorsed over but never repented over. And, and he walked away. And he moved to Paris and he gave himself totally over to sin. He said there was nothing that his flesh desired that he wouldn't do. And one night he was riding in a carriage, and a lady who was a brand new Christian uh, was interested in his opinion on some poetry. And he says, sure, I'll, I'll listen to this poetry. And she read it out. She said, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune thy heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never failing, call for hymns of loudest praise. And she looked up and Robert was just bawling. He said, I wrote that, that's mine. He says, but now I've drifted away from it and I can't find my way back. She said, the way back is written right here in the third line of your poem. Streams of nursing, mercy never ceasing. She says, those streams are flowing even here in Paris tonight. And he was restored to his father. I, I just think sometimes these ideas of God's grace sound so scandalous because we feel like we have to pay. We feel like no way can his love be without condition, and it is. 
See, no one loves you more. And so we can turn to him totally and make him our Lord, not just our rabbi. He saves us from our sin, not just when he's a good teacher, but our Lord. I am not trustworthy. He is trustworthy. When I turn my remorse into action, everything changes in my life. Judas paid a high cost that he did not have to pay. Judas has gone down in history as the betrayer. You notice that children are not named Judas today. His legacy was one of absolute ruin. Judas literally means son of waste. He wasted his whole life and everything that God has given him simply because he did not trust. I'm going to invite you tonight to just step completely and fully into making Jesus your Lord and saying, I trust you. And I feel remorse over my sin. But tonight, it's not going to stay remorse. I'm sick of always being convicted of my sin and walking away. And my heart is just turning into stone. But turning that remorseful heart into a repentant heart. Where we actually do something about it tonight. And actually make a step. And actually say from this point forward, pornography is in my past. The fantasizing that's been going on in my head about that different man or that woman is in the past. My discontent, my greed, my jealousy, my envy. I'm actually going to go from remorse to repentance today. That's where our freedom is. It's when we actually take action. In the book of James, it says, Do not simply listen to the word and so deceive ourselves, but do Do what it says. Remorse to repentance. We're going to take communion, and I'm going to invite you to make a line in the sand tonight and say, this is it. This is my night. I'm actually going to do something about this. I'm turning from that sin. Why don't you pray with me?